Father God, we invite your Holy Spirit uh, to fill the house and to fill us. We pray, Lord, that you yourselves would minister to us today, that you would change us all a little bit, and that you would give us the thing for which we thirst and hunger this morning, the thing for which our souls thirst and hunger. We pray, Lord, that you would build us into free and mature people. In Jesus' name, everybody says. I was bantering with Antonio up here on stage uh, a a minute ago, and uh, I remember when Antonio uh, came to the church, he walked in one Sunday. He got a prophetic word that Sunday, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and, and was just intrigued. He just felt at home in the church. He stuck around, and, and I had uh, need of uh, some administrative help. And so he got uh, a part-time job uh, with, with the church and did all of the grunt work at Blue Water uh, during that very early season when we were just, you know, a much smaller group. We had this uh, tiny cramped office uh, where both of us would sit and try to do everything in, in one little space, and, and he was a very good soldier that first year. We'd hired him for a year, and then I remember distinctly he came to me one afternoon uh, at the end of the year. Just, he just kind of showed up and said, hey, uh, I just want you to know, you know, that the year is over, um, and, uh, and I just want to make uh, Blue Water uh, a permanent part of my life. I feel like staying here forever. And uh, so I'm in, and I'll keep doing whatever it takes, you know. And, and it, it, it shocked me, uh, not, not to say that it shocked me that someone would want to stay at Blue Water forever, because it's a cool place. Turn to the person next to you and say, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I know, I know it's hot. I know the people are a little strange, but, uh, but good things happen. Uh, it's fine. But just, you know, the fact that, that he would come sort of uninvited and unprovoked and say, I have made a decision. And my decision is, whatever your decision might be about me, I want, I want in. I've made a decision, and my decision is to be on board. Uh, not, not just this year, but for the indefinite future. Um, I'm, I'm here, and, and I want to be together. Because nobody does that. Nobody does that, you know, anymore. Maybe there was a time in which people did it more easily and, and more freely. It was like he was pre-committing to tons of stress. Uh, because, you know, in his decision-making process, he had found value. And, you know, that's not how people do church these days. I can't tell you what a rare experience that is for me. A lot of times people come to me and say, hey, you know, you have changed my life. I just cannot describe how transformative the last two years of Blue Water have been, uh, but I feel like I need to explore other options now or go on other adventures. That happens a lot. That happens a lot. But very, very rarely People say, there's life here, and I want to be a part of it, and I want to shoulder the burden for it, and I just kind of pre-commit to it. It's a super rare experience. And I just respect the decision-making power of that. You know, not just because, um, you know, Antonio is just 
been, you know, a godsend of a brother and a partner. I mean, I just had very few partners in life uh, like he's been for me. Uh, and I'm unendingly grateful, though tomorrow I will deny it and go back to sarcastically teasing you for all your worth. Yeah, I reserve the right. Um, but I just respect decision-making. I just respect the humanity of it. Someone who feels like they have such authority over their own lives that they can make big decisions like that, that's a powerful person. That's a person on which much can be built and many things can be done around a person like that. Are you following me? People who make decisions like that with intensity and a commitment to consistency have powerful lives and they change a lot of lives around them. And that's what I want to talk about today as we kind of wrap up our series on practical life lessons from the Bible. In this world of chaos, making good decisions is hard. Having a lot of decision-making power is actually quite difficult. Uh, we've talked about this sometime. You know, the world, the universe is in chaos. It's an entropy. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Ting things tend to fall apart. Everything decays. Right? The universe is slowing down and dissipating. Except where it's not. You know, life is that fourth force in the universe that wants to exist and to make coherent and to pull things together. So, you know, the world is the whole universe really is sort of a fight between the good order of life and like everything else. Everything else. Uh, the creation of the universe was a moment of life that nobody can explain, nobody knows how it happened, and the fact that life exists and tries to keep going and, and living and reproducing. Order versus chaos, order versus chaos. That is the universe. That is the world that we live in. And, and defining good decisions needs to happen in that context. I think good decisions are orderly decisions, decisions that bring coherence. Decisions that bring lasting life. Decisions that bring life that spreads. Decisions that tend toward good. Decisions that, that, that tend toward life. There's a conflict inside of us. It's a conflict of chaos versus order. Uh, we are all waging a conflict of self-mastery. What is going to control us? Will chaos control us or will order control us? Will circumstances and outside forces and influence control us, or will we achieve self-mastery, which is an incredibly rare virtue uh, as I perceive the world. We've often said at, at Blue Wire, one way to understand spiritual battles is that, that demons try to control you. The Holy Spirit tries to restore your ability to control yourself. God doesn't control you. That's not what he's after. Demons are after that. God is trying to give you back your own self-control because he created us to be independent beings, decision-making beings. Uh, when the Bible first introduces the concept of sin uh, in uh, Genesis, early Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, um, Cain, you might recall the story, is famous for being the first murderer. He murders his, his brother. And, and the Lord sort of foresees the trouble coming. 
And so the Lord speaks to Cain as he's sort of fuming in anger against his brother. And, and he says an incredible thing to Cain. He says, sin, literally harm or error, is crouching at your door. It seeks to master you. You must master it. He, moral life, in the way God defined it in those early stories, is really a battle for self-mastery. And, and the quality of sin, you know, we, we tend to think of sin as, as that thing which makes God mad. No, no, no. Sin is that thing which controls you, that thing to which you become addicted, that harmful thing that controls you, that harmful thing to which you become addicted. And over and against that, what God uh, presents is actually self-mastery. No, I want to re- restore your ability to make free choices rather than to let sin dictate your choices. I just think that's fascinating. Uh, and that's really not how it gets uh, understood in the world uh, too much. But, you know, sin is addictive. Uh, Letting something control you is addictive. It's strange, uh, but it's true. Anyway, in that context, making good decisions becomes, well, rather definitive. I mean, it almost defines human existence. It certainly defines human moral existence. And I think in some ways, depending on how you look at it, it, it's kind of of the the point of life. And in a world of chaos, in a world in which you're you're battling to achieve self-mastery, Making decisions requires intensity. It requires consistency. It requires a force of will. It requires maintenance because the universe does tend to decay. And if you're going to hold things together, you've got to work at it every day. Well, we're talking about pra- practical life lessons from the Bible. And it turns out that the Gospels, you know, all the Jesus stories the books about Jesus in the Bible, they have a ton to say about decision-making. Maybe you've never thought of it exactly that way before, but there are tons of passages in the Gospels precisely about what it takes for human beings to make good decisions. Jesus was talking about it fairly regularly. Now, you wouldn't think that decision-making is a super spiritual topic, You know, it sounds like a topic you'd read about in, uh, I don't know, uh, a management handbook or, you know, uh, uh, a life empowerment handbook or something like that. But as Jesus presents it, no, it's, it's really kind of at the heart of spiritual life. Uh, why? Well, because the capacity to make good decisions is, is an important life capacity. Decisions can be so difficult from so, for some of us that we go to tremendous lakes to avoid making big decisions in life. Let me just pause for an amen. Anybody like that? Just kind of avoid making decisions? That's a very popular coping mechanism. We just kind of make decisions by not making decisions, a lot of us. You know, we kind of stall until circumstances eventually overtake us and the decision is made for us. A lot of people go through life like that. Or we simply go with the flow. We do what's ever easiest or what's most convenient, which is a way of making decisions that involves absolutely no decision-making capacity. You know, it's just like, well, we just grope our way through it and we do whatever feels 
uh, convenient, easy, good uh, at the time. Or, and this is really, really popular, we make decisions by going with the crowd. You know, whatever is popular becomes our decision. Whatever is popular, we might actually get really passionate about and never stop to think, you know, we never really decided to believe this. We never really decided to go this way, but everybody was, everybody was doing it, you know, and we learned that in junior high school, and some of us never really grow out of it. We just become more sophisticated in the way we dress it up. Um, I uh, was trained in, in social sciences, political theory, political science back in the day. That's actually what my PhD is in. And uh, I'm endlessly entertained slash horrified by American voting patterns. As America, quite famously, you may have noticed this, is kind of divided down the middle in terms of political opinions. Anybody notice this recently? Uh, uh. Uh, so uh, it's rather a unique country in which we are, just to use the common parlance, about 50% on the left and about 50% on the right. Um, you know, about 50% of people vote Democratic, about 50% of people vote Republican right down the middle, and it makes every election sort of uh, dramatic. Uh, and it, you know, it achieves a certain you know, balance in the way policies are made. But it's, it's just a fantastic study for a whole bunch of reasons uh, that I won't bore you with right now. Um, but while America is split right down the middle 50-50, very few states are split 50-50 what you find is that states tend to be dramatically one direction or dramatically the other. What does that tell you? It tells you that people tend to think like the people around them think. Groupthink is an incredibly powerful force. And then when you know, your blue state uh, sees the voting results of that red state, it's like, how could they possibly think that way? Nobody here does. And, and it's like, wow, you are aliens. There is no possible way that we can talk to each other. But nobody in that mix has ever actually thought about things or made a decision in a very deep, independent, personal way. I exaggerate the point, but, but you get my drift. Groupthink is really powerful. Um, you know, of course, it's powerful in politics. It's powerful in morality. It's powerful in fashion. And, and it just kind of becomes a proxy for true decision-making uh, in our life. We go with the crowd, but potent, independent decision-making is a powerful thing. I would even call it a virtue. I would call it a rare strength. And if you have it, you are going to be a powerful and fruitful person. Sometimes I think it's a spiritual discipline in that we have to put a lot of spiritual energy into our decisions. Few can do it well. I'm not talking about making decisions easily. Right? Some of us uh, need to grapple with our decisions to investigate and exhaust our options before making a decision. Some of us just go with our gut and it seems like we make decisions really easily. Um, I'm not talking about doing it easily. I'm talking about doing it well. I'm talking about doing it intensely and decisively with intention and purpose. So like I said, there are quite a number of biblical passages in the Gospels especially about making decisions, and they each highlight in one way or another the intensity required to be a decision maker in this world. 
It's the intensity, the intentionality, the force of will that makes decisions virtuous. Uh, you will find one such passage on the back of your fro program from Matthew 21. It'll also be up on the big board, or you can read in your own personal Bible. Oh, excuse me. So what's going on in, uh, in Matthew 21 is, <gasps> shocker of all shockers, Jesus is having uh, an argument with some of the religious experts of his day. He didn't get along well uh, with the religious experts. They didn't get along well with him. Uh, and he's been debating them. And, and basically they're debating about who's right and who's wrong and how we go about determining that. And so Jesus decides to tell them a parable. Jesus often spoke in parables, which is to say he spoke in suggestive stories that required thought and interpretation, uh, which is not something that his religious opponents had uh, very often. But, but here he goes. He says to them, so what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing, and that son answered, oh, I will, sir, but he did not go work in the vineyard. Then Jesus asks his uh, religious opponents, which of the two did what his father wanted? And they answered, well, the first son did. The guy that said, oh, I'm not going to go work. Forget it, Dad. But then when the moment came, he went and worked. Well, that was, that was the son um, who did what his father wanted. And Jesus said to them, ah, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, talking about John the Baptist, came to show you the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So what Jesus is implying here to these very religious people is that they are playing games. They're playing games with themselves, and Jesus isn't going to buy it. He's basically saying to them, you guys talk a good game. But the fact is, when the moment of decision comes, it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors. It's the criminals that are showing up to the kingdom of God in a way that you guys aren't, even though you talk a good game. Uh, as you can imagine, that did not go over well uh, with the religious experts. But, but reading this story, well, I mean, what's it about operationally? What's this about functionally? And, and you might say that, well, it's about, uh, it's about decisions. It's about the way people uh, approach life and, and one lesson we can draw from the passage is, you know, saying that you're going to do something really is not the point. Saying that you believe in something is really not the point. The point is showing up. The point is, is following through. As I might interpret it, though, I would say that the first son, the son that says, nah, forget you, Dad. I'm not going to work in the vineyard today. But then later in the day does show up to work in the vineyard. I speculate that that son was aware of the internal conflict in him. That son 
was somehow aware of the battle of chaos and order in his own heart. Why? Because even though he made the decision, he obviously took a moment of reflection afterwards and said, wait a minute, from whence did I make that decision? You know, was that a good decision or not? And then he did an incredibly rare thing. He reevaluated, decided he had been wrong. I'm going to say that again. Decided he had been wrong. That's the rare bit. And then did something uh, that was right. Right? He probably, in the end, pleased his father, but he was probably embarrassed before his father a little bit too because he had to admit you know, that he was wrong in the first place. But, but that whole thing is a decision-making process isn't it? And to make a decision like that requires a good deal of intensity. Once you say something, the lazy thing to do is just to say it and move on. It's like, well, I'm not going to reevaluate my decisions. I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong. I'm not going to do something that I don't want to do. To overcome that, you need a, a great deal of intensity and force in your decision making. And this kid, uh, the first son, evidently had that sort of intensity. Now, the second son didn't. The second son said the easy thing in the moment, right? When your dad, who, you know, basically controls the purse strings in the house and stuff like that in this culture, when your dad says, hey, help me out in the vineyard, uh, you know, this son knew on which side his bread was buttered, and he said, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. Why? Well, that's the easy thing to do in that moment. It's the easy thing to do in that context. But when the moment shifted in the context, shifted and it came time to actually show up, what was the easy thing to do? What was the go with the flow thing to do? Well, obviously the go with the flow thing to do was to continue to play uh, on his Nintendo Switch. Um, and so, well, that's, that's the story. Uh, and Jesus is saying, you know, to these religious people, it's like, yeah, it's easy for you to be, you know, religious in your trappings and in a certain kind. But but now I've shown up, and I'm doing stuff that's real, and you find it inconvenient, you actually have to make a decision now. That's hard for you. I like the intense people. Um, this is just one example of it. Uh, some others of my favorites. I'll read a story from, from uh, John 6. This is a story that in my personal life uh, I think about uh, a lot. What's happened in this story is that Jesus is is kind of, uh, he's, he's on his march uh, uh, toward, uh, toward Jerusalem uh, in the gospel. And, and, uh, and there is a debate about his identity and what's required in following him and what kind of Messiah is this and stuff like that. And, and this is the point where he says, you know, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, which was a very metaphorical thing to say. He was not actually telling people to cannibalize him. Uh, but some of the people in the crowd were like, is he telling us to cannibalize him? What, what exactly is this guy saying? And whether or not they, they concluded that this is a cannibal sect or simply said, this guy is just confusing. You know, I'm trying to follow him and he just won't make it easy and clear. A lot of people got offended, in other words. A lot of people got offended in that moment. And in context, you know, 
it, it's curious, but because here's a guy who had just walked on water, who had healed a ton of people, cast out a ton of, they had seen miracle after miracle after miracle, but when he said something that bothered them, they got offended. You would think that they would have a little patience with a guy who just, you know, walked on water. But instead, they reserved the right to get offended when he said something that was confused. That's human nature, right? That's sin mastering you. Um, and anyway, a great number of them left. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is very confusing, Jesus. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus says to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? What if, what if, what if you see me rise to heaven? Uh, the Spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. You know, you, you should be able to sense some life-giving quality in me, guys. So chill out on the getting offended bit. Yet there are some of you who don't trust, some of you who don't believe. Uh, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Talking about Judas, he want, went on to say, this is why I told you that no one could come to the Father, no one could come to me unless the Father enabled him. You have, to, you have to think in godly terms. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. A lot of people are abandoning Jesus' posse. They're abandoning Jesus' church. And he turns to the twelve and he says, well, how about you guys? Are you going to abandon me too? Are you offended? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. And, and, and why I love this passage is because, you know, it, it's become a favorite quote of mine in my prayer life. Something very offensive, something very hard, something very tragic will happen in my life. And, you know, and I have that moment where, like, I, I, I'm like, is it even worth following Jesus? You know, and, and in my mind's eye, I see Jesus going, and then I say, sometimes in a grumbly fashion, yeah, where else am I going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. I've experienced too much life with you to let my momentary offense, my momentary difficulty overrule me. I don't understand it and I don't like it, but I will continue on with you, you know. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, that's why I chose you. That's why you're one of mine. You know, good job. But he also says that to Judas, right, who continued to follow him. And, and, and in mentioning Judas at the end and kind of underscoring that Jesus, Judas was part of it, the passage teaches us something. The passage teaches us, one, how to stay in a decision, how to persevere in a decision is to take a step back from it and say, you know, I feel offended and angry and crappy right now. <sighs> okay, but actually I've experienced life in this. I've experienced this to be a good direction. I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to put aside 
momentary confusion and feeling, and I'm going to stick with something even though I don't understand it fully. That's a very mature and intense and willful way to stick in a decision. Judas ultimately would give up. Judas, I think, was trying really hard to stay in the decision of followership that he made. But at the end, he was just too offended. He was just too offended that Jesus was not the leader that he wanted Jesus to be. And, and, and this passage kind of points it out. When these decision points come, you could be Peter. He's like, yeah, once again, I have no idea what's going on here. But you, I like Jesus. And I'm going to stick with you. Or you could react to a decision point like Judas did. It's like, all right, well, that's one more offense on my list. One of these days, it's going to be too many. Decisions need maintenance. And once you make a decision, you need to keep making that decision oftentimes. Why? Because the world is chaos and things tend to decay or fall apart unless you take care of them and you bring order to them. Decision-making, man, it requires a ton of intensity. My favorite momentary uh, decision story is the calling of the the disciple Matthew, the apostle Matthew, called called Levi uh, in uh, in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus was just walking through town one day, and I think the implication is that that Matthew, uh, called Levi, uh, in... uh, uh, one a Hebrew name, one a Greek name. Uh, Levi had probably heard and seen some of the stuff that Jesus had done. And Jesus was walking through town one day. Uh, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And I just love that scene. I love the idea of Jesus just coming to work. Jesus walking by your cubicle and saying, all right, follow me. Let's go. And you literally have to make a choice in that moment whether to physically get up and follow him and leave your job, leave your life. And, and that's how it was back in the day. Jesus never stayed still. He was always moving through your town. And if you wanted to become a Jesus follower, you had to leave your town. You had to leave your life. I mean, it's so provocative. And it's like Jesus went out of his way to end his engineer super dramatic decision point moments and I often wonder what would I have done even if I thought Jesus was great what would I have done if he pointed me if he gave me a decision point uh, like that we could throw in the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus says yeah you are close to inheriting eternal life what you have to do now is sell everything you own and give it to the poor are you in (sighs) decision point and that sort of decision would require a great deal of intensity in you. Decision points. God goes out of his way to provoke choices because uh, that's what makes us mature and will. That's why he gives us free will, right? Free will requires decisions, and decisions are what make us mature and, I don't know, real. Life is decision points. I think that's why God arranged the whole Jesus thing the way that he did. Why did there have to be a Messiah? Why did there have to be sort of a God-made man sort of enter into history? 
uh, well, my favorite way of answering it is that I, I think we need a point of decision. We need, like, God in the flesh. We need Him there in time. We need real stories about a real person so that we don't just kind of make God fit into our own conceptual framework. No, He lived. He did actual stuff in front of actual people who wrote actual reports. I mean, it, it's a thing. It's a thing. And when it's a real thing, you have to make a real decision. You can't just think about God. It's like, no, boom, there he is. The dude has a face. He has a moment, and that forces you to contend with him. There's a difference between believing in God and deciding on that God. I like that. That's a decision point, moment. There's a difference between believing in God and having a Lord and Jesus came to be Lord. A modern word for Lord is boss. Jesus came to be uh, the boss. And having a boss is what makes believing in God real. Having a specific boss like Jesus makes it real for us. It requires decision making. And as decision points go, I think that Jesus is a good one because, I mean, what a beautiful boss, right? Everybody loves Jesus. Right? Nobody looks at Jesus. Nobody listens to the Jesus stories and said, what a jerk. That's ugly. You know, they might say things, and I've heard this, I just wish God were more like Jesus. <laughs> you know, but I get, I get the statement. You know, I understand why people, as decision points go, Jesus is beautiful, but still, there are a lot of people that don't want to make Jesus boss. Uh, there are a lot of people that just balk at the idea of having any kind of Lord or any kind of boss because it seems wrong to them. And balk at the idea of having to make a choice about God and how God is and how God presents himself and what God requires. We don't want a boss. We the boss. I think there's a false choice culture out there. Um, I think in, in our culture, um, typically uh, in a lot of um, uh, American cultures and American subcultures and, wow, well, all over the world now. Choice is a big word. Choice is an important world. We want to preserve freedom of choice. But sometimes I hear all this talk about freedom of choice and the political debates about freedom of choice and the moral preaching about freedom of choice. And I think to myself, you're not talking about choice at all. People talk about freedom of choice, but what they really mean is keeping your options open. You know? It's like you get to do anything, and you don't commit to anything, and that's the power of choice. No, no, no. That's the power of not choice. That's the power of being open to everything and keeping your, open, your options super open. I think we're a culture addicted to not making choices. We call that free choice, but that's not actually what it is. It's an inability to commit to choice, I think generally. I'm being simplistic in the way that I describe it, uh, but I think that's probably a weakness in a lot of the societies in which we participate. Um, keeping your options open as a passion strikes me as kind of a wimpy way to live. I think it makes you a small person uh, if that's all you do. You know, it's your life. But if you don't make decisions in it, if you don't make intense, committed decisions, well, it's not really your life. It's just kind of a bag of blah. You're condemning yourself to go with the flow. 
I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think love is a way we practice not keeping our options open. I think love is a way we practice not keeping our options open. I mean, marriage is probably the most famous example. You're like, yeah, I'm going to uh, stay with you for the rest of my life, you person that I have met. Uh, and I'm going to love you in a unique way with unique expressions uh, forever till death do us part. You know, we make that vow at our weddings. What is that? That's a practice of not keeping your options open. That's a decision-making, committed sort of thing. And we recognize that, or at least, you know, historically for thousands of years, we've tended to recognize that as a big and important humanity shaper. But all relationships of love, I think, have that quality to it. If I love you, what I'm saying is, you know, I'm not keeping my options open about you. I'm for you. I'm, I'm with you, you know? And maybe it's not till death to us part. Maybe, you know, something else will intervene and separate us geographically. But if I love you, that's a, that's a commitment, right? And if you say that you love me, but you're just loving me for a little while, you're loving me in a way that's kind of, well, yeah, I mean, I like you now. Be careful. <laughs> don't offend me or... Don't do that thing where you wear a blue shirt against the blue background again because my opinion will change. Um, I appreciate your fashion comments, believe me. But if you're just loving me for the moment, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate the kindness. I appreciate the affection. Uh, but it doesn't feel like love ultimately, if I'm just an option for you. You know, and, and not all relationships are the same. You know, I'm not saying that all of you need to commit to me for the rest of your life or that I need to commit to you for the rest of my life in some manifest, complicated way because, you know, sometimes we just make connections. But I'm talking about love here, not how life works generally. And love, I think, is a practice of not keeping options open. If... if our deep relationship is nothing but an option for you, then I feel uh, like I'm a consumer item in your life or a throwaway or something like that. And I know that some of you feel like that in some relationships that you have in life. I mean, commitment is a rare thing in this world. And a lot of us uh, carry some scars from that. I'm framing it today in terms of decision-making, which might be a strange way to talk about love, but I think it's a practical one. Jesus followers often talk about accepting Jesus as Lord or accepting the Lord, accepting God as Lord, or in modern parlance, accepting Jesus as the boss. Now, if you're here today, you probably have at least a passing belief in God. You know, at the very least, probably uh, you, you, you believe that there's something out there in the universe, something bigger out there in the universe, uh, which is uh, a pretty popular way to describe uh, sort of a vague belief in God. Uh, these days. But you might not accept God as Lord. You might not expect God as the boss of your life. And the thing about accepting God as Lord is that you have to accept God on his terms. Otherwise, he's not the boss. You are. Yes, you may be my boss. However, you must abide by my conditions. Well, who's the boss 
in that situation. Um, you know, we don't want to play at being Lord ourselves. Otherwise, we're kind of rejecting a decision point. Otherwise, we're keeping our options open. And there's no submission to lordship in that. And there's very little love in that. We want to be both submitted and good loving humans, I think. I think the reason that there is a Christ, like I said before, I think the reason that Jesus kind of appeared and, and put on flesh and had the whole life story like we read about in the Gospels became real, became specific in history. I think the reason there is Jesus as Jesus is, uh, is, is because it provokes straight up acceptance or rejection. Like you have to deal with it. You have to make a decision. And if you make a decision before him, then he, he has to be boss. That's kind of how he showed up. He's a beautiful, amazing boss. But he's boss, you know. And I think the whole story provokes that point. Are you going to make a decision about it? If you are, it's going to require a great deal of intensity. A great deal of intensity. Because the whole world tends to chaos, and Jesus is all about order and life. Sometimes confusion, sometimes challenge, but it's a confusion and a challenge that leads to life, or as Peter says, eternal life, everlasting life. There's something in this that brings life and order to me and to my world, to the world. Jesus has to be boss. There's a choice to be made. It doesn't mean that you understand everything that Jesus said or did. It just means that he's the boss. And so you're going to get to the bottom of whatever he said and whatever uh, he did. One of the great mysteries in my life is, is, is about what is required to get human beings to accept Jesus as boss. What does that take? And I say it's a mystery. It's a mystery to me like art is a mystery. It's like I know beautiful art when I see it, but I can't really explain how to make art. You know, it's just it's kind of mysterious and wonderful and powerful. And I think accepting Jesus is kind of that way. You know, it's art. It's mysterious. It's, it's, it's powerful. What, what gets people there? What makes it happen? I don't know. I just know that when it happens, I see it. It's revelatory. It's changeful. Like, it's beautiful. Religious systems sometimes try to force you to accept God in a certain way. And I've, inclu- I've concluded that you cannot force it precisely because it's not designed to be forced. It's designed to be a decision point. It's designed to be a decision that people make, an independent sort of thing, a momentous free choice. That's how God has designed the story of humanity. And I think it's a wonderful, beautiful story because to make a choice to submit yourself to a Lord Well, that takes a lot of love, provokes a lot of love and intensity in us. That sort of decision-making is rare in the world. Sort of pre-commitment, anything goes, I'm in sort of decision-making. That's rare in the world. And I don't see it as often as I would like. In any case, let's wrap up. And just think about decision points in life today. How are you doing on that? Are you a powerful decision maker? Can you make those sort of decisions where you just like make it and don't need to have it made for you? 
I think that's a very important human question. So what are you choosing today? What are you deciding on today? I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to interact with each of us on that question. What are you choosing today? What are you deciding today? You are choosing to commit to what today? Could be any range of things. Well, let's just let the Holy Spirit talk to you about that. You are choosing to commit to what today? Or maybe for some of us, you know, we're choosing to leave something behind today. Jesus tells a lot of stories about that as well. To follow him, you often need to let go of things. To, to follow a great thing, you often need to let go of a good thing. To follow life, you often need to let go of death or let go of chaos. Uh, to follow order, you often need to let go of sin. Are you able to make a decision that's powerful there without having the decision made for you? What are you committing to? What are you leaving behind? Deal with us, Lord. And, of course, there's going to be some of us who are going to need to choose to make Jesus Lord, you know, to make God the boss on his terms, not on our terms. So maybe some of us today are choosing to accept it choosing to accept him in that beautiful, mysterious, artful, life-changing way. Deal with us on it, Holy Spirit. Maybe we need to make you boss. How's it going? Oh, I love decision makers. Just love decision makers. I always find uh, that it's helpful to to empower things, to to manifest things. So I'm just going to ask you if you feel like you've made a decision today. I'm not going to ask you what it is. Um, We'll leave that between uh, you and the Lord and anybody with whom you choose to share. But if you have, if you're one of those people today that really chose something, chose to commit, chose to leave, chose to accept, just stand up where you are. Just make it real by doing something with your body. Just stand. So much about decision making is standing, literally or metaphorically. Just stand up into it. It is true that another way to make our decisions real is to announce it uh, to somebody. I'm going to leave that up to you. You can tell one of your neighbors or friends. The prayer team is going to be over here along the Makai wall. You can go uh, share it with one of them. And what they will do is they will bless it as powerfully as they can in Jesus' name. They will imbue it with supernatural power, which is a very cool thing uh, to do. 
But, but even now, uh, I just encourage you to announce it to the Lord. Just kind of hold it up in your hands to Him and say, well, this is what I'm choosing today. I'm choosing order over chaos, uh, life over decay. I'm choosing righteousness over sin. I'm choosing you as boss instead of a life of being bossy myself. Well, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would sanctify the decisions that are being made, the decisions that are being announced. And I pray that you would empower us to be practical and powerful decision makers in life, that we might make life in the tradition of you rather than letting life happen to us in the tradition of the lost. Breathe life in places, Lord, that have been uh, uh, deathly or stuffy or stuck. I pray that you would make us mature people, that you make us legacy people. You make us people that hear your voice potently each day. In Jesus' name and in Jesus' purposes, we commit ourselves to you, Lord. Thank you for being here. Amen.